Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Hi there, it's Laura Wasser. And if anyone knows how much divorce sucks, it's me. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces. Creating peace in families is how I lost my voice. From the top of the food chain all the way down to my very first case, which was my own divorce when I was 25. I wrote the book on divorce, or I wrote a book on divorce. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, How to Divorce Without Destroying Your Family or Bankrupting Yourself. That book became a bestseller because it presented another option for ending a marriage, one that doesn't necessarily include lawyers and one that leaves more money in both parties' bank accounts and less animosity in their hearts. We created It's Over Easy, the one-stop breakup divorce resource online with the same principles in mind. So welcome to the Divorce Sucks podcast, where we talk about breaking up, getting divorced, and moving on. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Sunny Side Up Report. I am Laura Wasser. I'm Johnny Rains. Good morning. And the Sunny Side Up Report is where we take the first few minutes of the show and do our internet roundup, things that have happened on the news and in the media that regard divorce, breaking up, new chapters, etc. Our first article today is from fatherly.com. Filing for divorce is easier than ever, but is that a good thing? This one's written by Adam Bulger, who uh, is, did some uh, really great reporting here about a new website called It's Over Easy. Uh, a That's site- actually really funny. Um, that, yes, I didn't see that this is this mentions me and It's Over Easy, but I do like what Adam says. Yes. If Kramer versus Kramer were made today, would Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep spend their entire divorce placidly staring at laptops and avoiding all the Oscar-winning acrimony? That's what celebrity divorce attorney Laura Wasser is banking on with It's Over Easy a site dedicated to providing affordable access to often expensive divorce services. And, you know, then it kind of goes on to say, is this a good thing? Is it making it too easy, etc.? Obviously, my thought is that it's not making it too easy. It's still going to be difficult. But it was actually Kramer versus Kramer that I go back to it again and again when I'm trying to get people to educate themselves and kind of change the way we approach divorce so that we don't do to our kids what Dustin and Meryl did mm. to their fictional child in Kramer versus Kramer. And do you think, I mean, because they go on to say in this article, they discuss that, that point exactly, which is, if it's that easy, does that mean pe- more people will get divorced? And what I thought was interesting um, that, uh, what I thought was interesting is What did that- you think was interesting? <laughs> What I thought was interesting is what Sharon Rivkin, who is a California therapist and marriage counselor, said. Um, She actually describes herself as a last-ditch effort therapist. She believes the couples who are ready to split don't fret about their budget, and they don't fret about whether it's going to be difficult or hard. If they're ready to get divorced, they they will do it. If you're really miserable, you're not going to let money stop you. Hmm. Well, I think Sharon might live in a little bit of a bubble. Maybe she's talking about the people she sees. I think there's a lot of people that probably don't get divorced because it is too expensive. Mm. Um, and I and I'm hopeful that if people really are in a situation that they want or need to be getting divorced, that bringing access to this justice is going to help those people out. I also don't think that, and I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page with Sharon here, that people are going to just get divorced because it's less expensive. Right. I, I doubt that. Although when we first launched last year, I did send out like a big, huge email and I had a 
few people write back and said, wow, this is amazing. I hadn't even been thinking about getting divorced. So now that I know you're doing this. Yay. I'm going to go for it. I think they were kidding. Um, Particularly if you think about the five ways that divorce can affect your athletic performance, written by Ashley Graves, the Sports Daily. Divorce is traumatic. This article examines five ways that divorce can affect your health and offers ways to protect you in this situation. Which include depression. Obviously, one of the first things you'll experience during a divorce is a depression. Depression. Weight change is another. Insomnia, loss of appetite. As an athlete, you have very special nutrition needs. Even as an athletic supporter, I think I have very special nutritional needs. Did you just call yourself an athletic supporter? <laughs> Divorce and depression can lead to a loss of appetite. When you can't eat properly, your health and athletic performance significantly drop. Okay. All right. Jockstrap Johnny. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> this is a good one. This is What Sugar Daddies Want by Cindy Tran from our friends at Daily Mail. We have talked about this these before, these sugar babies. Sites and the founder of Sugar Book, Darren Chan, shares the things older men look for when searching for a sugar baby. He also tells wannabe babies how to act. Oh, good. Thank it's, God we've got this insight. Yeah, Go ahead. Quite tell a us. commentary on tra- transactional relationships, uh, unfortunately, based on gender stereotypes. He says that uh, <laughs> adventurous, free spirited, and a tiger in the bed yeah. are just some of the traits wealthy sugar daddies are looking for in a much younger woman. And, and, for the men, here's a note. Do not flirt with her girlfriends. Avoid lying ah. about the things that you cannot provide and avoid being a cheapskate. Hmm. Got it. He goes on to explain the five golden rules of being a sugar baby. As a sugar baby, the five things they should do are to take care of their appearances and overall well-being of their mental, emotional, and physical health. Most importantly, a sugar baby should be available for her sugar daddy, <laughs> honor the terms of relationship, and be honest and transparent in the relationship. Well, thank you, Darren Tran. You are really moving women's rights forward in the world. Look, I, I will say this. Yeah. At least everybody knows where they stand. I've always said that. This is a transactional thing. He's very clear about that. And you know what? It takes all kinds. Well, he does no go on judgment. to say, before before we move on, um, that he also wanted to break the stigma around sugar dating, which is one of the reasons why he founded this uh, lovely website, Sugar Book. The next one has to do, as we sometimes talk about dating. Have you been fired? How to avoid the new dating trend named after the doomed fire festival, F-Y-R-E, written by Unity Blot, also for Daily Mail, when you're dating a poser. So there was this festival, the fire festival, that was supposed to happen in the Bahamas, right? Yes, yes. You should watch the documentary there, too. There's one on Netflix and one on Hulu, and it really is an interesting commentary (laughs) on millennials and how they arrange things and or, or, or don't. And they believe what they see in, in visual images. And that's right. what this whole thing is, uh, you know, talking about being fired. It's where you are either produ- pre- presenting yourself on social media as someone you're not, or you're hiding who you really are from social media. Right. So the expectation was advertised with supermodels frolicking on idyllic beaches. The doomed fire festival is now widely known as the greatest festival that never happened. So how do you avoid getting fired when you are doing online dating? Well, you, first of all, take check out the person's social. Um, if if they're, the, the, your partner could be telling you all the right things in person, but be strict in never putting pictures of the actual relationship on their social media accounts. This can be a warning sign your partner is trying to live two lives. 
Also, when they ask you for money, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. In any relationship. I'll All see. right. Next, yes. the philosophy that significantly improved my dating life. This was on manrepeller.com by Jackie Homan. Make true intimacy a feature of every encounter. This is was a very interesting read for me because I, I don't think you can achieve true intimacy in the first meeting with, with anyone. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> Let's see what she says. Yes. We met at a wine bar, my first hinge match, and I, a week after I moved to the city. The date went well, really well. You know that fluttery heart feeling? It flitted through my whole body. Future dates took shape in my mind. Afternoons at the Guggenheim, picnics in the park with a mm-hmm. bottle of wine. Maybe we'd fall for each other. We had so much in common, but we'd take our time. Neither of us was looking to jump into something. Within a few weeks, things had taken a turn. There were texts that went unanswered for three days. Late Friday night follow-ups littered with apologies. Was he not interested or playing hard to get? Indifferent or unsure? Neither seemed appealing, but I chalked it up to what everyone says. Dating is hard. Hmm. So what does she then... What well, she she, go, she goes on to say that the, the, this idea of deeper dating, right. um, that's that's really the point of this, or intentional dating. And it, that is achieving an intimate connection when you are in the moment with a person. So she goes on to say, the deeper dating philosophy doesn't require you to be serious about finding the one. In fact, it encourages you to take the future out of the equation entirely, treating each date as a full relationship in and of itself. And I think what she says, the key to making the philosophy work is seeing all forms of connections as equally compelling. It was a bit of an adjustment at first, but I found that when dates do go well romantically, they're much better for it because they're infused with openness and vulnerability. Hmm. And she quotes Brene Brown, who I really love. I saw her at the Watermark Convention a couple weeks ago. Right. She says, in order for a connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And I, I'm not so sure about this, you know, intimacy or deep dating, but I will say this. If you're dating, it may not be that you're looking for your next long-term relationship or that you're going to find it, right. but it definitely is an opportunity for you to represent yourself. And so sometimes the dating can just be getting back out there, talking about yourself, and kind of creating a new narrative for who you are, particularly yes. after getting out of a relationship. And that, look, the person sitting across the table from you, you know, sharing a pizza or a glass of wine may be the person that's right for you, and he or she may not be, but what you've done now is kind of created something, forged something, and it may or may not lead to something with the other person, but it should lead to something for yourself. I see what you're saying, yeah. So, And it's a perfect segue into our guest today, Taylor Armstrong. She really certainly made a new life for herself. Absolutely. Listen up. No matter what you're doing, no matter what the weather's like, let's be real. When you're out and about, you are sweating. Now there's a new way for you to keep it fresh and clean with aluminum-free coconut deodorant from Kopari. Kopari's coconut deodorant is aluminum-free, vegan, and does not contain silicones, sulfates, parabens, GMOs, or baking soda. Whether you've got sensitive skin or just don't want a bunch of questionable ingredients on your body, particularly in your armpits, Kopari's deodorant offers a cleaner option that works just as well. It's formulated with plant-based additives like sage oil and coconut oil so you stay fresh all day. I use it, and it's amazing, going from school drop-off to workout to court to meetings to podcasting to meetings with tech engineers and then branding. All day long, I stay fresh, and I actually get like a little coconut scent throughout the day, which is super cool. Kopari's coconut deodorant goes on smooth and doesn't leave that sticky white residue behind on any black clothing you wear. Along with their original coconut scent, Kopari offers a fragrance-free version of their deodorant, plus two new scents, beach and gardenia, are available now. 
My favorite scent is just the original coconut. Kopari offers a deodorant subscription so you'll never run out of deodorant again, and it's shipped to you as often as you choose automatically for free. They also offer a money-back guarantee, so there's no reason not to give it a try today. Just go to koparibeauty.com slash divorce to make the safe switch today and save $5 off your first order when you subscribe. Okay, ready for it again? Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash divorce, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, koparibeauty.com slash divorce. Do it now. Stay sweat-free. Be happy. At It's Over Easy, we're trying to take the difficulty, confusion, and frustration out of the legal part of divorce. The other part of it is going to be emotionally devastating, and we get that. But when you're emotionally devastated and you're going through a legal process, it can be confusing. The other thing I want you to know is that divorce is not only an ending, but it's also a beginning, a fact to which my guest today can certainly attest. She's a mother a wife, a public speaker, and the author of the best-selling memoir, Hiding from Reality, My Story of Love, Loss, and Finding the Courage Within. And you, you Real Housewife fans, know her as part of the ensemble cast of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Welcome to Divorce Sucks, Taylor Armstrong. Thank you. So tell my listeners a little bit about moving to Los Angeles and becoming a Real Housewife. And you were Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, for my listeners who don't know the Real Housewives. So tell us a little bit about when you got married and moved here and how that all started out. I moved here to um, open a business. It was a textile company in Los Angeles and ended up subsequently meeting my former husband. And we did get married and have had a little girl together who just turned 13 yesterday. Oh, my gosh. So unbelievably hard to imagine since she turned four in season one. (laughs) Everything goes by seasons in our lives, of course. So um, shortly after that, I was um, asked to come in and audition for Housewives and Ultimately, the six of us were chosen as an ensemble cast, and it all went from there. That's extremely cool. So you were a cast member from 2010 till 2016. I was on for three, the first three years straight through, Mm -hmm. and then just made appearances a few times since then. Got it. And so Kennedy is your daughter, yes? Yes. I have a 14-year-old, so I get it. I'm like, has the eye rolling begun? Oh, my goodness. She even does eye roll emojis. Oh, yeah. See, I'm (laughs) glad they found that one, because they didn't have that at first. But I use that every time I write to my son, because I know he's rolling his eyes as he reads it, so I might as well just give him the emoji for it. Um, When was your book released? My book was released in 2012. Okay, and it's called Hiding from Reality, My Story of Love, Loss, and Finding the Courage Within. Tell us a little bit about the book for the listeners who don't know. Well, Hiding from Reality is an all-true title because I was trying to keep the abuse that was going on in my marriage and all of the trials that we were having from the reality TV cameras and from the world and perhaps a little from myself as well, not wanting to admit that that was my reality. Right. I think there's a lot of times when people who are in unhealthy relationships question how unhealthy is my relationship? Is it unhealthy enough that I should leave? And when abuse occurs, of course, that answer is always yes. But in my situation, and I think because there's so much sensationalism of such severe abuse out there, you rarely see the cases of just a lot of emotional abuse play out because it's not big enough for TV or film as, as impactful. And so I found myself early on really questioning, is this severe enough that I'm in an unhealthy relationship and need to seek help? And was the answer yes, and you just didn't come to that right at, right at, right then? Well, in the beginning, it was, as, as you, I'm sure, are very familiar, 
familiar. It was a lot of control, a lot of deep-seated jealousy. And for someone who I feel I grew up with a a pretty low self-esteem, and some of that jealousy feels good in the beginning to someone. He must really love me if he's jealous. Right, right. If he's so concerned about all of these different things, then maybe that's just because he likes me so much. And I kept telling myself different narratives to believe that those weren't really as significant red flags as they were. And some of the control feels a little protective in the beginning as well. It feels like it's someone who cares about you, so they're trying to put parameters around you to keep you safe, when ultimately he stripped away so many things of so many powerful things about me and my own ability to control my own life and to make a good distinction between control and love and protection. Um, and then over time, it became very, very physically abusive. And ultimately, I ended up with an orbital floor fracture and orbital floor reconstruction on my right eye. Oh, my God. So uh, at that time, you definitely know you need to go. <laughs> right. But it's, but again, as you said, it's so it kind of builds up and builds up. It's like weight loss or weight gain. If you're seeing it and feeling it every day, you may not necessarily notice or or be able to react appropriately to what's going on. It's not like he just walks in and like backhands you the first day. It's these little things that build and build and build. That's a perfect example. I say people don't ask you out on a first date and punch you in the face. Right. And there's a a metaphor that someone gave me once that I think is interesting and it's it's that if you throw a frog in a pot of boiling water, the frog will jump out. And if you put a frog in a lukewarm water on a stove, it'll swim around and it's pretty happy until you start turning up the heat. And then at first, maybe it feels like it's a jacuzzi. And the next thing you know, the frog is dead. And such is the case with domestic abuse. It's building and building and building. And it makes it harder to determine when is that moment that it's enough and something needs to be done. So, okay. Now tell us more about your relationship, because I don't think all of our listeners know exactly what happened to you, which is also such a very, very difficult situation to be in when you have somebody yourself who's so clearly a victim, and then there's an abuser. Now what? Well, there's so many challenges with that, and I talk to women all the time who are in that position and have children. They may not have resources. I, after joining the show, I had given up my textile business, and at his urging, because right. he wanted to, to take control care of you. me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, he told me he wanted, it's just too much work. You should just focus on being a mother, and I want to take care of you. All those knight in shining armor feelings that some of us like to hear in the beginning. So I did that, and in the end, he ended up having complete financial control over me. Um, I had, you know, credit cards, but that was only another way of him tracing me Mm -hmm. because he would pull up my American Express and then want to sit down and ask me when you were at coffee bean and you spent eight dollars you must have bought coffee for two people who were you with and it was just it was a line by line and I just I would walk by the office and I would see my Amex bill up on the screen and it had nothing to do with what it was going to cost it only had to do with tracking me constantly right Right. and I had no access to our bank accounts he you know he controlled all the money and a lot of people would say oh you just need to stockpile money but I couldn't and it wasn't that I couldn't spend money he just wanted it to be in a traceable form right Um, a lot of that kind of control and definitely a lot of verbal criticism and that wears a person down a lot of people that I talk to I I feel like emotional abuse stays with you you know those tapes play over and over in your head and having a young child at home you know there were times when 
those tapes were playing from the night before while I'm laying in the floor with a coloring book with Kennedy, but I'm not really with Kennedy. Right. I'm still in my head uh, or thinking about what could potentially happen later once he got home. And those are really the years that I that I regret the most, that I didn't find that courage to leave earlier so that I could really be more present for my child and not a constant ball of nerves. And some of the your listeners that may be familiar with Housewives, I was extremely skinny. And that was, again, just due to the amount of anxiety and stress that I was under. It wasn't that I didn't eat. I just was such a ball of nerves all the time. And I just was losing weight and losing weight. And then that would also trigger him because he would think that people were seeing outward signs of my anxiety and my stress. And he certainly didn't want anyone to know what was happening behind closed doors. Right. So how old was Kennedy when you guys split? So after he fractured my orbital floor, I filed for divorce, and Kennedy was five. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day, um, so to to fast forward from there, I filed for divorce and asked him to move out, and Kennedy was five, and um, I was supposed to have some custody meetings with him, and at that point, he was very much willing to talk to me about anything because he was terrified about the repercussions of fracturing my orbital floor. Now, wait, let me interrupt you. Did that come out as part of the divorce filings that there had been domestic violence? That was, you you weren't holding back at that point? No, I was not. And also it was becoming public knowledge because of being on the show and we were filming. It was during the season and, um, that's hard. That's hard to cover up. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. And, um, and it was just becoming, such public knowledge and I think his biggest fear was that if I didn't press charges that the district attorney would bring charges anyway right. because it was such a public case right. so he was very willing to discuss custody and any other um, alternative plans and um, I went to go meet him one day and his office was dark and he wasn't there and he was a workaholic so it was completely unusual for that to be the case and I just had this sinking feeling that something terrible had happened and it had never crossed my mind in the past. He was very narcissistic and not someone who you would ever think would take their life. But ultimately I found him hanging in the house that he had moved into. Oh my God. So you found him. I did. Now how do you tell your five-year-old that that happened to daddy? Well, unfortunately she was in the car. Oh, Okay. With my assistant, and I had gone to the house. I had been calling him all day, no answer, and I I just knew something had gone wrong. Um, and I went to the house. I had a friend of mine's husband meet me there who was a world championship kickboxer, just in case things were to go awry. And my little girl was in the car with my assistant, again, because I never assumed it was going to be something so catastrophic. And... Um, after I found him, I ran into the street where they were parked, and I was on the ground and quite hysterical, of course. And um, then all of a sudden, it just occurred to me that she was there. And so we had her nanny come to the end of the street, and my assistant drove her down um, so that the emergency vehicles and it wouldn't be a, right. a, any more of a chaotic scene than it already was. But, you know, the 911 tapes are out there, and they're pretty dramatic, and it's stuff that, I, unfortunately, is on the Internet. And I have spoken with my daughter about it um, to the extent that I feel is appropriate for her age. Right. Um, but after the suicide, speaking of the abuse and, and having children in the home, 
I always felt that I had shielded Kennedy from knowing what was going on. Right. Because we had a live-in nanny, and he would get home after she went to bed because she was little. Right. And, you know, those things happen behind closed doors. Um But I was driving her to school one day, and she was in her car seat, and her my psychiatrist had said to continue to continue to bring up her father to mm-hmm. her so that she doesn't think people just disappear right and i was saying do you miss daddy and she said no n o and i said well i miss him sometimes do you remember when we went to hawaii and i was trying to give her some references and she waited for a minute and then she said Mommy, why would you miss a boy that screamed at you all the time? Mm. So listeners, like we always tell you, they soak all of this up. They get it. They process it. It stays with them. Shield them as much as you can, but know that even if it's just your your mood, your vibe, whatever's going on, they're getting it. They are getting it. And that was... I just, thank goodness she was sitting behind me because I had tears running down my face just feeling like I thought I had done a better job of protecting her. Did you ever worry that he would become violent with her? I didn't worry about that. He had had two children um, prior, and Uh I had never seen him be violent with them. I mean, raise his voice. He was definitely a hothead, but not nothing physical um i did worry though about filing for divorce because he was a rageaholic and although he had never done anything in front of me to any of the children i was very scared and i think a lot of women who are considering divorce who have a violent partner or a, a partner with a bad temper are worried about what that custody time with them is going to look like. And when you're completely away, you're not protecting, not feeling like you can protect right. them. It's another scary step in the process. Absolutely. Did you see Big Little Lies? I did. I mean, did that resonate with you? Absolutely. Just behind closed doors and the love-hate relationship and the kids and all of that. It was incredible. Yes. I do feel that movies or shows like that and people like you out there speaking about this is really eye-opening. I'm sure there's a lot of people, women and men, but probably more women going, yes, that's me. That that Oh, my God, that happened to somebody else, too. I didn't know. I, I'm ashamed. I'm scared. I, all of these things. Bringing it to the surface, I feel like, is so important. Are you an experienced driver looking for a career that pays well and offers vacation days from the start? If so, then drive for Penske. Talk to a Penske representative today and apply now. Call 855-CDL-PENSKE. Start driving with Penske today. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. If you like my show, you're going to love Off the Vine with Caitlin Bristow on Podcast One. Apparently, two days a week just wasn't enough. Join the Bachelorette as she pours you a third glass of wine every week with her new Q&A episodes every Friday. Download Off the Vine with Caitlin Bristow every Tuesday, Thursday, and now Friday on Podcast One. This is the Divorce Sucks Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Wasser, and we're speaking today with Taylor Armstrong, the original Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and the author of the best-selling memoir, Hiding from Reality, My Story of Love, Loss, and Finding the Courage Within. So, Taylor, I mean, in addition to all of the, like, crazy emotional stuff that was going on, from your perspective, is there something you can tell our listeners just about the legal and maybe financial controls that were red flags for you in retrospect? 
I think the biggest fear with the financial control was trying to figure out how to leave. Right. Because I had access to credit cards but no cash, I was terrified of how I was going to acquire an attorney or legal services, how I would ever fight a custody battle with someone whose resources were so much greater than mine and his access. And he was determined to make me believe that he would bankrupt me. And once I was living in a cardboard box, he would take custody of my child because I would be declared unfit to care for her. And when you're living in fear and someone who has a clear financial advantage over you, at the time it felt believable to right. me. And I feel like that's a huge fear for it, people. And it's so important for for people like you that can share that there are legal services. There's legal services. Well, even more than legal services. I mean, not only it's over easy, which is online divorce for uncontested, but then there's all kinds of nonprofit associations all over the country that can help parents and, and individuals who need help. But another thing to know is in a situation like yours, and I hear that so often people saying, you can't fight me. I'm going to crush you. Da, 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 da. I actually make the joke about the cardboard box. You're going to be living in a cardboard box under a bridge, you know, but the fact is he would have been paying your legal fees. That's the the more moneyed spouse or partner. Even people that meet and don't even move in together certainly aren't married, but they have kids. That person is going to be paying the fees because most states want there to be what's called a level playing field between the parties so nobody can absolutely crush the other person. So know that, listeners. Somebody that's telling you that is completely continuing this game of emotional abuse and control. That's not true. Go online Get some facts. Call an attorney. Call your local hotline. Find out what actually the law is in your state so that you can say back to them, I don't think that's how it's going to work, actually. What was, I mean, yes, him, him breaking your, is that your eye bone? Is that what it, I mean? It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's the uh, part of your skull that supports right. where your eye is. That was the the straw that broke the camel's back. But how did you overcome the hurdle of saying, I mean, actually going and calling an attorney and getting yourself in there to meet with somebody and filing the paperwork when you must have been? I mean, that not only was it the defining moment of, oh, my God, he broke my face, but, oh, my God, what else could he do if I file for divorce? That was a huge fear, and it was a huge fear all along. All along, and he would say at times after a horrible night of you know, either physical or just severe verbal abuse, he sometimes would lock me in the bathroom for long periods of time, just hours, and just scream at me for so long. And I remember one incident um, where I finally just said, "Can you just hit me so we can get this over with?" Oh boy, because it's that expectation and that just anxiety about what's to come. And yeah, just hours of just screaming and yeah, I mean, you just after a while, you feel like you just can't take it and just whatever to end it. But he had said to me on numerous occasions after incidences like that, like the following day, I'm afraid I'm going to kill you someday. So he knew. And was he apologetic? I mean, you see these things of the guy the next day going, I love you. I'll ne it'll never happen again. Please forgive me. I mean, I know he was apologetic when you started getting divorced and talking about custody. But was he emotionally apologetic after these incidents? No. Really? I know. I hear so many people talk about the honeymoon phase, but he would blame. He was always, you make me so mad. You're the only person that makes me this way. And there were so many red flags in my relationship. He had previous history of the same with other people. How and did you know this? 
Well, I had known that he had had court-ordered anger management. Oh, that's a good, that's a red flag, folks. (laughs) The old court-ordered anger management course is something to definitely watch out for in your partner. (laughs) I know. And looking back, and even when when I speak to people and I have to tell some of the things that were so evident from the beginning, it's it's humiliating still but to this day. But when but. you're in it, it shouldn't be. And the fact that you're now talking about it is huge. I should not, nobody should be humiliated. They should just be like, okay, got it. Now how else can I prevent that from happening to myself and or else uh, someone else? Right, right. Well, and you know, in the beginning, I wanted to believe all of the things that he told me. And of course, she was the one that was crazy. Right. right? And so, Which is always easy to believe because <laughs> exactly. she's such a bitch anyway. And it's good to have a common enemy. So yeah, okay. Right. So that was, uh, you know, he didn't really need court order anger management, but because she was so crazy, that's how it ended up, right. which it, for some reason was believable to me at the time. Right. But, you know, he I found recording devices all over the place. He would constantly was recording me and, you know, just a lot of stalking behavior. He had access to my computer and go through all my emails. He was constantly wanting to look through my phone and w- would want to go through my list of contacts and ask me who every single person is. And if it's anything like your phone, I don't remember a third of the people okay. in my phone. Yes, I'm like, and I see them calling, and I'm like, oh my God, who is that? <laughs> I know. So just a lot of the very stalking, jealous behaviors that were definitely red flags that I missed. Now, how is all of this going on, and then you're on a reality TV show? Like, how is that? That that stresses me out, even without the abuse piece of it. But when now you're trying to keep all of that quiet and present, you know, we do so often now, in addition to those of us who aren't on reality TV, the normal folks out there. But what we post on Instagram and the way our Facebook and the way that we present is always, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this lovely? Nobody's posting a picture of themselves when they first wake up in the morning unless they've done a little something. Nobody's posting a picture of themselves when their kids vomited all over themselves. It's always the cute baby pictures. And for for you to be on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, everything was perfect and wonderful. Even the skinniness, I'm sure everyone was like, oh, God, Taylor, you look amazing. You're so skinny, whatever. How are you then covering up everything that's going on behind closed doors at the house? Well, fortunately, the girls and I were had great relationships and they knew bits they and did. pieces. And, you know, it was interesting. In season one, when I saw myself, I didn't even recognize me from, an, from a personality perspective. Um, I had just become a kind of a shell of a person. And it seems so Stepford wife, just in watching my interviews. And one of my dear friends called me and he said, I don't know who that girl is on that show, but that is not you. And he's known me since I was in college. And right. so he brought that to my attention. And then as I watched the season, the first season, I could see the tension between my husband and me. And a lot of people were coming out and saying things like that. Like, I think he's abusive to her or not necessarily physically at right. the time, but just that, that we had a control, that he had control issues. And then I did Wendy Williams in season one, and she said, he abuses you, doesn't he? And oh. I almost fell off my chair because the last thing I need him to hear is that that is on becoming Williams, evident right. on TV. Right. And there was a, a whole section uh, written on the hotline, which is the national hotline mm-hmm. for domestic abuse. They did a big, um, a big blog on the way that things played out on the show and some of the safety things that they had concerns over. Really? Now, did he did he leave a note? He did not. He didn't leave a note. Okay. Interesting. And so, and you obviously had no indication that this was going to happen. Did he have his estate in order? Well, that was another thing that 
um, I made a mistake in early on is that he would have me sign things. Mm -hmm. And um, I have since learned that you should not sign anything, no matter how much you think someone loves you, unless you at least know what you're doing. This is true. And I I have other friends that I've talked to about that are married, and they tell me, oh, I sign anything my husband put in front of me. So it's a, that's such a fine line, and you as an attorney probably could speak to that better than I, but it's hard to tell the person that you are supposed to love and trust completely right. that you'd like to look into a document a little further before or have, you sign it. Or have your attorney look at it. <laughs> yes. No, but I did, um, he did leave me with a lot of problems. So, and you're married now, and I you're am. married to the guy that was representing you in your divorce, John. He was not representing. Oh, he was. Okay. He is an attorney, though. Okay. Yeah, but he doesn't practice. He's a business guy. Got it. He does. He is an attorney, but he was helping me. So when I was left with all these problems, I had um, some public litigation that came to me. That was my former husband's, mm-hmm. but because he never signed the divorce papers, I ended up having to deal with all of it. Right. So I had a corporate attorney group and then a personal attorney group trying to help find all the assets because I never was allowed to be on any of the bank accounts or anything. It left me without any access to our finances and it was incredibly complicated and so about a year and a half after that John was helping me manage my now husband was helping me manage the two law firms so Got that it. I wouldn't get completely buried in legal right. fees as you know right <laughs> and um and so um yeah about a year and a half or a little bit more than that later we ended up having a relationship nice yes and do you see differences in what this better normal relationship looks like? I mean, you've learned from your experience? Absolutely, yes. yes. And you know, I when I first married John, when he asked me to marry him, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this again. I never thought I would get married again after the horrible experience that I had. And then just having so many more things that unfolded after the suicide, I realized that I didn't even know the person that I was married to. Right. And so I just told John, you, you have to marry me for exactly who I am because I'm just getting back to a little bit of who that person used to be, and I just can't change for anyone again. I became such a shell of myself in my first marriage. You know, he would tell me, you laugh too much, you don't laugh enough. You talk too much, you don't talk enough. I don't like your hair like that. You know, your dress is too long, your dress is too short. There was never, with a control person like that, as you know, there's never a right answer. You can never change, but you're always trying to keep that lid on the pot. So I would just try to maneuver around and keep things under control. Sounds exhausting. So I I know on our show, we talk a lot about communication, couples therapy. You and John have been on VH1 couples therapy, yes? Yes. Helpful? Um, I think it was eye-opening for him, for me to be able to just completely express all of my emotions or a, a myriad of my emotions regarding what I have been through, because it's not a real easy one-on-one conversation and having a therapist there to ask all the right questions right, right. and help me let him see really how traumatic everything was for me, gave him a better understanding of the fact that I'm I'm still jumpy, I have post-traumatic stress disorder, and when we first got together, he would come around the corner in the house, oh, God. and I would... <laughs> You know, jump out of my skin, and right. he would say, "Why? Why do you jump? Like, I, you know, I'm home." And I just said, "It's going to take a while." Right. And I think doing the couples therapy helped him to understand that those scars were going to take a while to heal. Taylor, give our listeners a tidbit of advice if you had to sum it up to women in abusive relationships. What do they need to know? A safety plan is the number one thing. You need to have an escape plan. The most dangerous time for a woman is when they leave. 
because you've just taken all the control away from a controller. And that can turn out very badly. Um, I would say a safety plan, having a good support system around you. One of the things that becomes quite difficult is people tend to start turning their backs on people who are abused over time because they get tired of living on the roller coaster with you. I would go to my friends, um, some of them on the show even, they would get tired of me telling them what was happening behind closed doors and then expecting them to be kind to him in public. But it was only because I didn't want him to know that they knew right. what was going on. But they get people get tired of that. So having a support system around you, and I say to those of you who are, are a part of a support system, just stick it out. Because if, a lot of women return seven times before they actually decide to leave. So they're going to need that support for a long time. What do you have to say about this story that's very much in the news right now about Jesse Smollett in terms of somebody that makes false allegations? We know how horrible domestic violence is. We know how horrible it is for people who don't believe or blame the victims. Somebody who actually makes up the domestic violence or the violence that was perpetrated, the hate crime. What do you say to a situation like that? I was so shocked by that story. There were people in the beginning who questioned whether I could potentially be abused, being abused. I think that they think that no one gets abused behind the Golden Gates in Beverly Hills. You know, it only happens in socioeconomically deprived areas, which we all know is completely untrue. It happens in every race and socioeconomic, every, or just across the board. I right. meet women with, you know, wearing Chanel with huge diamonds that will tell me that they're being abused at home and they don't know how to leave. And then I've been behind bars in the Bronx with women whose stories, unfortunately, are so similar. Right. It's just about control and jealousy and fear. And I think that falsifying allegations, it's so hard for me to even fathom, but I think that people find it hard to believe that a woman who's in your PTA could potentially be being abused. It's just so unfathomable. Do you think false allegations, not just Jesse Smollett, but anybody that makes those kind of allegations takes the movement backwards? I mean, it really, to me, seems like almost as bad of a crime as the domestic violence to say that somebody's done it when they haven't. I absolutely think it takes it back. And I think it happens in probably more custody cases mm-hmm. where they're trying to convince that the other person's a bad person. Yes. But it the other thing I would say about divorce is the parents that bash one another back and forth to the children. And I'm, I'm sure you talk about this on your show, but someone said to me that you're teaching your child that 50% of them is bad. Absolutely. We say that all the time. And so it's really, really hard, particularly in a situation like yours. Obviously, your ex had some real, real demons. and But, but still, Kennedy's half him. So how do you reconcile that? It sounds like you are doing a really good job and working through it. And she's 13 and probably thriving. But that's a tough one. I mean, that really is a tough one. Because as much as you might dislike someone as, as ill as they may be, and you've certainly seen the worst of it. You know, we have the dad's five minutes late to drop the kid off, or the dad shows up with his new girlfriend in the car, and you just want to like make a little remark. You've had the worst and that you could hold your head high and still th- say things like, well, sometimes I miss daddy. That is really admirable. Well, thank you. I don't. I don't bring it up maybe as much as I should. I don't know where that fine line is. Yeah, um, I don't know that anybody does. I think as a parent, you kind of have to walk that line and see how she's doing and what she responds to. 
Right, right. And I hope that now she's seen what a healthy relationship looks like. Mm -hmm. My biggest fear is that the fact that I stayed as long as I did could perhaps influence her relationships in the future. Women or people who have experienced domestic violence in their home are much more likely to either be abusers or to be abused. And that's something that I have to make sure that it stops here. Yeah, totally agree. Taylor Armstrong is an outspoken advocate for victims and families of domestic violence, and she shares her message through public speaking at colleges and universities, charitable events, and corporations. Thank you so much for being here today, Taylor. For those of you contemplating, and even for those of you in the midst of divorce, here's some advice. Seek counseling, get information, calculate your financial situation, and figure out the timing that's best for everyone involved, because this decision will have great impact. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on Divorce Sucks. Thank you for the autographed copy of your memoir, Hiding from Reality. Folks, you can win this by following us at It's Over Easy and telling us why you want to read it. Taylor, can you tell people how we can stay up to date with you and where to find you on social media, please? Sure. I'm on Twitter at Taylor Armstrong and on Instagram at Official Taylor Armstrong and my website, taylorarmstrong.com. And if anyone is interested in having um, some help raising money for charitable causes surrounding domestic abuse or relationship inequality, they can reach out to my assistant, Marla, at taylorarmstrong.com. Awesome. Thank you all for listening and for following us at It's Over Easy on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Rate us at iTunes and tell us who you want to hear from on The Next Divorce Sucks. We can't do this without you, and we'll be back next week. Chat then. Thank you, Taylor Armstrong. Thank you.